Hello and welcome to this uh, new podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. I'm extremely excited today uh, for this podcast for two reasons. First of all, Vicky Mays is uh, my co-moderator, and I'm also always fascinating to have her, you know, perspective on on public health issues. And hello, Vicky. And the topic is, as you know, very close to my heart and very central to the mission of the journal. And it's about survey and health monitoring, and in particular, the use of population-based surveys, the use of random sampling in order to monitor health uh, events in population. And over those last year, what happened with uh, COVID-19. So, Paul Elliott. Hello, welcome. Would you like to say a few words about who you are? Yes, hi, great to be here. My name is Paul Elliott. I'm Professor of Epidemiology and Public Health Medicine at Imperial College London. And I was leading the REACT program, which stands for Real-Time Assessment of Community Transmission, uh, which was in the field for two years during the pandemic. Thank you. And welcome, Paul, and a very impressive project, and we'll be able to talk about it more. And uh, we have here from this side of, of the Atlantic, Natalie Dean, who has been promoting this European surveys in the U.S., but also has been thinking very carefully about uh, how they could eventually be imported and what uh, would this mean. Welcome, Natalie. Hi, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So, Natalie Dean, I am an assistant professor in the Department of Biostatistics and Bioinformatics at Emory Rollins School of Public Health, and I am a public health monitoring enthusiast. <laughs> so, I'm excited to to chat about these these studies today. Thank you. Thank you for being here, Natalie. So maybe let's start with you, Paul, because, you know, when the crisis started three years ago, everybody started to collect data that was convenient data from people who got tested, etc. And and very few people had the courage to actually do the right work and, and go and do a random survey of their population, etc. Can you tell us how you did that and what led to React 1? So we, um, I mean, like everybody else uh, in the UK, there was very little testing happening. We were underprepared. And with, I think, a lot of foresight, the government commissioned ourselves with a logistics partner, Ipsos, to run this large survey called REACT1 to collect data on a random sample of the population of England to really give that situational awareness. What is actually going on? Who's infected? Where are they infected? Uh, which groups are infected? You know, how does it vary across the country? Uh, and what are the levels and so forth? We started work on the study in April 2020. So this was actually during first lockdown and put together everything at you know, double neck speed. We had fantastic uh, working arrangement with our ethics committee so that we could get permission to do this work. Um, developed all the survey um, materials, at double neck speed and then we were in the field actually at the beginning of May and the 1st of May and our first survey was around 100,000 randomly selected people 
And of course, we were able to take advantage of the National Health Service in England because we were able to use the National Health Service list of patients to deliver our random sample. And that was that was a huge advantage. And what did you expect you would get through a random sample that uh, you wouldn't have gotten otherwise? Well, the problem with the with the testing that was happening is that it was um, haphazard. It was happening at that time. Then people were getting tested in hospital, but not outside hospital situations. And of course, there was also asymptomatic transmission and those people wouldn't get tested. So really, there was no real idea as to the extent of the infection, what was happening to I me mean, at that time during lockdown. Actually, we were seeing a decline. But of course, later on, we could pick out the the new variants as they came along. We were able to estimate the R number during our surveys, and that that proved very, very useful. And we could see in real time the sort of turning point between falling infection, increased infection. At some stages, it was happening more in the children. Other stages, it was then moving through the population more in older people. And then we were also able to link what we were seeing at the population level in terms of infection with future risk of hospitalization and sadly mortality because we could see the lag in our data and we could tell what the pressure would be on the health services coming up based on what we were seeing in our survey. Let me ask Paul a question. Paul, did you see any kind of difference in the cooperation of people than when you usually do surveys? Because I would imagine that the will of the people were to want to know this wonderful way of getting information. So at the beginning, Vicky, the, you know, people weren't able to get a test through you know, routine methods. So we were offering a, a test. People were in lockdown, so they were pretty much at home. So the response at the beginning was extremely high, over 27%, uh, which is really unheard of for this type of cold calling, sending people a letter. Later on, the response rate did drop a bit, but it never got below 15%, which again is still high for this type of survey. And of course, what we were able to do, because although we had some differential response, we did collect data on all sectors of the population. So we were able to adjust our prevalence estimates for the differential response rate uh, relative to what we knew was the population structure of the country. And Natalie, how... How did you react in, in 2020 and when you were saying the type of data we were collecting here? I know you, you wrote in Nature and you, you raised our awareness about those European projects, but what was your reaction? Tell us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, early on in particular, there was such an enormous need for basic epidemiological understanding about a new pathogen. And these seroserveys were so important, as Professor Elliott referred to. I mean, we didn't know the denominator, how many people were being infected when you have such a, a range of severity and so many people who have little to no symptoms. And so really defining those basic epidemiological parameters early on was extraordinarily important. But then it also provides that situational awareness. So Yeah, there was extraordinary need for this, this information, both at a sort of a, a, a global understanding of this new pathogen and also local understanding of what's going on in these outbreaks. And so one of the things I did on social media and other um, talking to reporters was sort of advocate for this type of monitoring and these types of studies, because there were a lot of sort of conveniently sampled data, but 
it's really, you know, and that can provide sort of a quick and dirty estimate, but it's these uh, random samples that provide the most value. Natalie, the, the proportion of uh, asymptomatic cases, there's no quick and dirty estimate for that. I mean, there's, there's no way to do that if you don't have a random sample or... Yeah, well, I mean, they're so, right. I mean, people were trying to use blood specimens, store blood specimens from blood donors. I mean, you can get, you know, early on there was sort of Facebook-based surveys and things like that. There were people going to supermarkets and, you know, getting everyone at the supermarket or, you know. So, I mean, certain study designs were able to provide a sort of an order of magnitude when there was real substantial uncertainty about about the severity. But when it comes down to understanding like different subgroups and um, really, really being able to interpret the, the reported data, you need that that randomly sampled data. And, and frankly, for the case fatality rate, I, I just want to remind you that in 2020, according to what you had in the denominator as infected, it could change dramatically. You had one percent, five percent, you know, more time. It was it could be huge without the type of data that. Uh, that Paul collected. So, Paul, just uh, to make sure that our uh, listener understand what is a random sample, how did you, what did you do actually to get this random sample and, and to get the, the information about COVID? Yeah, so in England, in the UK, nearly all the population are registered with a primary care physician, a general practitioner through the National Health Service. So we were able to select our sample from essentially the population denominator of the country. And what we aimed to do, so the idea was to say, can we find what the variation is by different demographic groups? And that included by geography. So what we aimed to do was to find a similar sample size in each of the 315 lower tier local authority areas across the country. So we stratified the sample to obtain roughly equal numbers in each place. And actually that that worked really well, but it obviously slightly oversampled the rural areas and undersampled the urban areas because of the way that the population is distributed. After a period, we realized that we really needed more data in the urban areas. So we, we then moved to a population size based random sample. So we switched during the study. And you sent them actually uh, kits so that they could self-test themselves and send them back to you? Yeah, I mean, this was a great strength of the study because it depended on the participants themselves collecting the, the sample and also responding to a questionnaire. So what we did is we invited people by letter. They were then invited to go online to fill in a registration, a very brief registration questionnaire. And then if they wanted to take part in the study and they understood the consent, they would be sent a swab kit and instructions as to how to complete the swab, plus a link to a video to show them how to do this. They would then take the swab and we asked them to put the swab in their refrigerator. And in the uh, first part of the study, we would then send a courier to their address to pick up the swab because we were concerned about deterioration of the sample. We did that on a cold chain, and then the swab went on cold chain all the way to the laboratory. We had a dedicated laboratory for our study, a commercial laboratory, and they then ran the PCR. And then with our colleagues at Ipsos, we then fed back to the participants 
their result. And of course, uh, we fed these results back to government almost in real time. I mean, this ha whole thing happened very, very quickly. And so I'm curious to know, Vicky and Natalie, I mean, we have two models here, the models in the UK that uh, Paul just uh, described, and the Spanish seroepidemiological survey, the national survey, they went, you know, they did a two-stage sampling, and they went actually to the household, to the houses, and uh, knocked at the door and, and, and got the information in a very traditional, I mean, actually, in 1918, that's how the public health service did it, exactly the same. Mm -hmm. So what do you think, uh, both of you, would be the design that probably would be most be easier to import here? So, so some of my colleagues at Emory um, did undertake a, a random sampling survey in several states, and it was building off studies that they had done HIV in, in the past. And, you know, but they, they did struggle with response rates. I mean, it was real issue uh, and return rates as well. And so I think, you know, whatever happens in the U.S., it will need to account for the local context of there's a real hesitancy about people coming, knocking at your door. And so, you know, figuring out kind of what works best in the U.S. context. I mean, there's still a lot of trust in people's doctors. And so maybe something that, that aligns with, with people's physicians or, but yes, I mean, I think we'll need significant behavioral science research into kind of what, what is a, a most acceptable way to approach people in, in the U.S., yeah. If, if I may, so um, as you know, as well as carrying out the study looking at the infection prevalence with the PCR test, we also did a seroprevalence survey called REACT2. And again, this was done at home with a self-test lateral flow kit. And people really wanted to do it. The response rates in that study were uniformly high. People really wanted to know if they had antibodies. And again, they were invited in. They could register for the study. They were sent the kit if they registered. And then they did the finger prick themselves and then took a photo and uploaded it to the website. And we then did some machine learning to read those samples. Actually, people did pretty well, but actually the machine did slightly better. So people are really willing to do this self-testing. We did a lot of public engagement, even during the, the early parts of the pandemic. We did a huge amount of public engagement to see whether this would be acceptable to people. As a result of that, we changed the Lancet, we changed the design, but people really were very keen to, to do it. So I think this idea of self-sampling at home is really, really good. And uh, obviously it massively reduces the costs because you don't have to send intrepid epidemiologists and public health people around knocking on people's door. Also, I mean, the other thing is in uh, at that time, I mean, you had to have social distance. So even the idea of someone could knock on the door, they had to stay at the, stay at the door. They couldn't go in and take the sample. But they had, they claimed 60% participation in, in Spain. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the Spanish, yeah. Yeah, no, no, I think it was fantastic what they did in Spain. Um, but uh, for us, it worked really well to do this self-testing approach. Yeah. Well, let me just follow up with something you said, because I think it's the most interesting aspect of maybe what we can learn in the United States. You talked about the kind of engagement that was necessary in order to get such a fantastic response. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that may be where we in the U.S., and Natalie, if you have some suggestions, that we in the U.S. could really benefit from that. 
Yeah, sure. So we had a long-standing participant and patient engagement group through Imperial College. And so we started with them. And then we did some pilot surveys where we did write to random samples of the population. And we asked them to take part. In addition, we also sent, um, I mean, when we're now talking about taking uh, finger prick blood samples for the seroprevalence and people, uh, you know, so sort of friends and family, but also random samples of the population. We did that at scale and we were able to, you know, adjust what we did. And we asked people, you know, what would you suggest? How would, can we improve it? And uh, we got really good feedback and, and that's how we were able to developed something which was very acceptable to the population people wanted to take part in. Yeah, I mean, I might add too that COVID itself became very politicized. I think that was one of the, the major the challenges over time. I mean, I think willingness early on is very different from kind of willingness later. But thinking about how we can depoliticize a little bit some of the public health monitoring and maybe by integrate linking it with other diseases that are less hot button issues, you know, like other sort of systems that, that can exist, that can have multiple functions um, that, that include monitoring uh, for, you know, yeah, for, well, who knows what, what in, in the next pandemic, what it will look like, but it's just something, something to think about these multi-purpose systems. And, and I think the point of Vicky is, is well taken. Probably a, a random sampling approach in the U.S. would need to rely much, I mean, very strongly on, on grassroots organization, on the community organization, people that really have access to some of the population that are minoritized and usually difficult to access for the traditional public health structures. So let's move to the, the other point. So what's the future of, of React One now that we are in the new phase of COVID? So React One was in the field for just on two years. So I, I said it started on May 1st, 2020. And our last sample was picked up on March 31st, 2022. So we haven't been in the field for measuring prevalence for over a year. We like to joke slightly that we went out on a high because we we went out just as the uh, BA2 Omicron really took off. And it was the highest that we'd ever recorded, actually, was on that end of March. So, But since then, uh, so we, we had the forethought, if you like, to ask people if they would wish to be followed up in the longer term. And we have two and a half million people who consented for long-term follow-up which involves both linkage to their health records through the routine health records and also the ability to go back and revisit people with questionnaires and so forth. And so what we've been doing since then is following up the population. We are carrying out a long COVID study. So we're asking people about uh, their symptoms, about persistent symptoms, and also we are undertaking a biological study, a bit similar to what's happening in the US, actually, where we invited 10,000 people back for multiple blood tests, clinical exam and so forth. And we're now carrying out various omics, uh, including whole genome sequencing, to see if we can find a biological signature that determines amongst infected people who goes on to get persistent symptoms and post-COVID symptoms and, and who actually 
recovers quickly or was asymptomatic. This is fascinating, Paul, but you are uh, scaring me. Is, <laughs> is it turning into a cohort study? I mean, the health, public health monitoring aspect, where is the real time, etc.? It's a long-term cohort study. Um, just by nature, I mean, we, we have a natural experiment. The whole population has been exposed to a new pathogen. And we don't know the long-term sequelae because it's too early. We know the short and intermediate term, but we don't know the long term. So I think it's really important that we follow people up and see what happens over that longer term. Uh, as I say, we have a biological component. We have a, a social questionnaire component. We're also doing um, online cognitive testing um, because, as you know, patients who are suffering with post-COVID syndrome or long COVID can complain of brain fog. So uh, I think it's really important that we do follow people up. No, I, I totally agree. But but where is the, the monitoring aspect? Uh, Natalie, uh, Vicky, I mean, I hope that we would put in place some structures that would allow us to catch, you know, what else comes, what comes next, or learn what we've learned from COVID to other chronic diseases and, and other major public health issues. So can can we keep some of this and integrate it in our surveillance and health monitoring system? Well, I, obviously, an extraordinary amount of effort has been put into developing this, you know, this system, this this survey, this um, study, and so I, you know, I know there's a lot of interest in thinking about how things can be scaled down and scaled back up, and also how you can, you know, what are the the things that the study can do, sort of in interim periods that add that value and justify the investment. Because there's extraordinary upfront investment and in how do you keep that return on investment going? And so switching to long COVID, but then, you know, what other pathogens? Um, and so I would think these like multi-purpose systems that are monitoring all different types of respiratory pathogens or, but yeah, but keeping, but there's a lot of interest in how do we keep these studies warm so that they can be scaled back up? Yeah. No, no, I was just wondering, do you have the capacity as you're out now to, if new things um, happen to emerge, particularly in terms of respiratory, are you collecting the kind of information that you'll be able to spot those early on? So we're not in, so when when we were in the field, in, in the thick of it, as it were, I mean, we were out, we weren't continuous, but we were in the field like 17 days or so a month. And we were able to really spot everything that was happening. Uh, you know, when the when the new variants came in, we could see it. We were also doing viral sequencing, so we 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 actually knew what people were infected with. And we did add flu actually towards the end of 2021, beginning of 2022. I mean, there wasn't much flu, but the, you know, if there had been, we would have been able to spot it. And we did do a a a brief look at other respiratory pathogens. But now we're not. You know, that, as um, Natalie was saying, I mean, this is very, very expensive to keep that sort of level of intensity. So we're now currently in passive mode, as it were, in the follow-up, more passive follow-up, although we are going back and asking people about symptoms, but, you know, on one or two occasions, not every month. However, if needed, we have a consented cohort of two and a half million people. We could very, very quickly go back to people. And of course, these people have taken part already in, in our survey. So I think it would be possible to get back up to speed 
quickly if there were a need to do that and of course if there were funding to do that so we're reaching the the end of this podcast i'm going to ask you just some uh, final remark each of you uh Starting with you, Paul, and and again, congratulations. I mean, it, it it required quite a lot of courage and of presence, you know, to start such a project and that quick in 2020. And very few people on earth were able to do it. So so that was fascinating. What is your main advice for other people in other countries, in other population? if they were to start a similar project? What was the main lesson you drew? I think I think there are several aspects to this. I think really important, and, and Natalie mentioned this, is the uh, situational awareness. We were able, because we were seeing the data in real time, we were analysing it in real time. We were feeding it back to Public Health England at the beginning and then our UK Health Security Agency into government in real time. And the other thing which I think was extremely important is that we were very open with about what we were seeing and we were rapidly publishing our results initially almost immediately as a preprint as a full paper preprint and then as a follow-on paper in scientific journals so so the data were out there for our scientific colleagues to see but also for the public to see and also accompanying every one of our reports we we did a press conference there's a an entity called the Science Media Centre in the UK, which which acts as a way of scientists talking to the press who then talk to the public. And I think that was extremely useful. First of all, to get out the message of what was happening. And secondly, that people felt really engaged with what we were doing and that the results were meaningful. And that, I think, enabled us to keep up a very high response in the public. It was absolutely full on for two years. So anyone who wants to take this on, clearly it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the other thing I think, uh, although there was a big organization behind us and we were working with a commercial company, we, we as a university couldn't have done this ourselves. So we worked with Ipsos, which is a very big, well-established research company. So they handled all the logistics because the logistics were massive in order to get the sample, to get the kits out, to get the stuff back, they sent us the results, we analysed the results, and we actually had a very small team. And that, that worked really well because the small team knew what they were doing and we knew we had to get the results out. We knew we had to get the data out quickly. So there was a huge effort whenever we got the data to get these reports out very, very quickly. And as I say, you know, literally a handful of people were doing that work. Great. Thank you, Paul. And Natalie, I mean, I can also congratulate you for your clear thinking about these issues, your paper in Nature First and the one you just wrote for AJPH. And I practically like this idea, and I would like you maybe to close with this, uh, that uh, when we actually redimension those projects, we should think in terms of what's the most effective way to have a project that will impact policy. And can you say just a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the editorial we wrote for AJPH um, extends from some conversations around the concept of value of information. And we're thinking about these studies as providing an extraordinary amount of information, but what are the dimensions of it that are really the most important for modeling, policymaking, individual decision-making, I mean, we talk about these extraordinarily large studies, but what are the parts of it 
that are the, the most valuable um, at the end and, and thinking about how we might, yeah, what we should add and what maybe we can trim. And, and so really taking a critical look at the value, you know, how much more information leads to how much better of a decision. And I think it's something that economics does that I think we in public health could really benefit from a bit more. And so I think we're going to be studying these data from the pandemic for a long time. I think that will include how these seral surveys and uh, population surveys were run and, and what we can learn for the future. Yeah, and I thought this idea was enlightening because, uh, you know, in the end, public health is policy and, and enforced policy. So that was very key. And Vicky, you know, I know very few people who have a pulse on the public health system in the U.S. as you so are we going to be just jealous for the next years or can we use some of this and, and get rid of our fax machines and get some real time health monitoring in this country? What's your feeling? Are you optimistic, pessimistic? And this will be the last words of this podcast. You know, I think our colleagues have given us a challenge. And I think this is and what we're going to see is CDC and others needing to meet and deciding how to change. When we started, you said something I thought was so insightful, and that is about this word surveillance and thinking about monitoring. And I think what's going to happen is in the U.S., we're going to determine that monitoring in a way in which we engage things over time real-time basis, that we're going to see these models, but it's going to take a little time to get there. So all I can do right now is say I'm jealous, but I also applaud my colleagues for the leadership because it, it really challenges the U.S. to do it. We did try. Remember, we had the Pulse Survey that was using the ATS data. We had some things, but the benefit of what the two of you really showed is something that I think is an aspiration for us in the U.S. Thank you, Vicky. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, everybody, for your time and for your great work and contribution to public health. I hope we'll meet in person soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.